What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And boy, what a program we have today. Republicans are already scrambling in various states to make it harder to vote. To uh, I mean, literally, in one state, they're talking about requiring, if you want to have a mail-in ballot, you have to go to your bank and have it notarized. Republicans are continuing to lie about COVID deaths in red states. This is bizarre. But I want to start out with a filibuster. I think, I think this is really important. I just published a piece on this over at TomHartman.Medium.com. Basically laying out the history with hot links to all the, you know, any kind of documentation you may need. The filibuster basically is this. There are 100 senators. If one senator says, I object to continuing with, you know, to moving forward with any kind of discussion about any particular piece of legislation. Once the debate is stopped, the legislation is dead, right? So any one senator can say, I object, and essentially launch a filibuster. This is not Mr. Smith goes to Washington with Jimmy Stewart. You don't have to stand. You don't have to speak. Yes, there have been filibusters like that. That was performance theater. The reality is one senator raises their hand, speaks up, sends a note or an email to whoever happens to be running the Senate that day, this is the Senate Majority Leader pro tem, or the President pro tem of the Senate, and says, I object to this legislation. And at that point, it takes 60 votes to stop it. Out of 100. Now, there are only 50 Democrats in the United States Senate, plus the Vice President. So we have 51 votes, but it takes 60 votes to move a piece of legislation forward over the objection of one particular senator who might be bought off by one particular industry that that legislation happens to be all about. This is not in the Constitution. In fact, in James Madison's entire lifetime, he died in 1836, the father of the Constitution, you know, one of the younger guys, he was in his early 30s when he helped put the Constitution together in Philadelphia in 1787. You know, until the day Madison died, he objected to anything like the filibuster, as did virtually everybody in the founding generation. They would have considered it anti-democratic. The whole point of this country that they set up, the whole point of our governing system is the majority rules. There is wisdom in majorities. 
You may not like the outcome, but there is wisdom in majorities. This was the this is the premise upon which every republic around the world that uses democratic elections is founded, including ours. So where'd the filibuster come from? Well, there's this guy named John C. Calhoun. He's sometimes referred to as the grandfather of the Confederacy. He first was elected to the House of Representatives. Then he ran for president, and this was back in the day when John Quincy Adams was running for president that same year. This would have been, what, the election of 1828, I think? I'm, I'd have to go back and look, I'm sorry. But, you know, right around that time, right, right around 1830, he ran for president, and he came in second. And back in those days, this was before they'd amended the Constitution, back in those days, whoever came in second became vice president. So John C. Calhoun, now John Quincy Adams became president, he was outspokenly opposed to slavery. John Quincy Adams was, he was John Adams' son. He was so opposed to slavery that after he left the White House, Congress had passed a law that slavery, the word slavery may not be mentioned on the floor of the House of Representatives. So after John Quincy Adams left the White House, he ran for the House of Representatives from Massachusetts, from his, to his town of Massachusetts, won And every single day the House was in session, for years, John Quincy Adams would stand up and speak the word slavery and try to initiate a debate on it. Over on the Senate side, though, well, you know, as I said, John Quincy Adams, his vice president was John C. Calhoun. Then the next president was Andrew Jackson, and his vice president was John C. Calhoun, too, who was still running for president. So in the middle of the Andrew Jackson presidency... You know, the famous Indian killer guy. He loved being called that. In the middle of that presidency, a Senate seat opened up from South Carolina, which is where Calhoun was from. He resigned the vice presidency. He and Spiro Agnew are the only two vice presidents to have ever resigned. He resigned the vice presidency. The governor of the state of South Carolina put him in as the United States senator, one of the two senators from South Carolina. And this is right around 1836, 18, whatever the year was, in the mid-late 1830s. And John C. Calhoun invented the filibuster to prevent in the Senate what John Quincy Adams was doing in the House of Representatives, which was trying to have a discussion about slavery. And it worked. John C. Calhoun, uh, the guy who gave a floor speech saying that not only was slavery not a bad thing, it was a, quote, positive good. That's John C. Calhoun, open advocate of slavery, owner of enslaved human beings. He created the filibuster to stop any discussion about slavery, and that worked right up until the Civil War. And then after the Civil War, as historian Adam Gentleson notes, quote, from the 87 years between, the recon- between when Reconstruction ended until 1964, that would have been 1876 until 1964, the only category of legislation against which the filibuster was deployed to actively stop bills in their tracks was civil rights legislation. It was still all about race. It was still all about white supremacy. LBJ got the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act passed a filibuster, the conservative, Southern conservatives tried to filibuster both simply by, you know, but not simply, it was a hell of a lift, by mobilizing American voters. He got people really outraged. Well, now the filibuster is not so much being used to stop civil rights legislation, although that's true. It's mostly being used to, to defend 
big corporate interests. And we've got two Democratic senators, Joe Manchin, who wants to defend oil and coal. He's from West Virginia, coal state, right? And Kirsten Sinema, who wants to defend big banks and insurance companies, have both come out and said they will not vote to end the filibuster. It only takes 50 votes, 51 votes to end the filibuster. And we've got two Democrats who are saying, no, we want to be able to continue to protect the industries that fund our campaigns. So, you know, I published this piece, as I said, over at TomHarbin.Medium.com. If you want to call either of these senators and your two senators, and I would strongly recommend you consider doing that, the number for the congressional switchboard is 202-224-3121. I'll give you that again in just a second. And just call them and say, hey, it's time to end the filibuster. It's a racist anachronism. Let's bring democracy to the Senate. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The number for the Senate switchboard, 202-224-3121. We'll be back. This is a serious thing. In fact, in the op-ed that I wrote today, I pointed out that the filibuster is not only being used to defend these corporations and their money interests. If the filibuster isn't ended, the entire planet is at risk. Because senators beholden to the oil industry, the coal industry, the natural gas industry, the fossil fuel refining industry... Uh, there's a whole bunch of industries that are like, you know, very much into all this. Both Democrats and Republicans are using this. Anyhow, I'll, I'll rant about that more in just a moment. But uh, Carol in Philadelphia. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind? Tom, Democrats and Republicans both use it. I love Bernie. I'm a, you know, Bernie-crat. But Bernie's famous 2010 filibuster lasted, mm-hmm. what, eight and a half hours, a marathon, and it was about yeah. a tax relief bill he was trying to get for working, you know, working people and the working poor. Can you comment on? Uh, hopefully that won't. Bat- I'm afraid Mitchell used that playbook, and uh, I don't know. Comment on that, please. Thank you. Yeah. Well, what Bernie was doing was not so much a filibuster. I mean, he called it a filibuster because, you know, enough people and certainly from Bernie's generation had seen Mr. Smith goes to Washington that they think that there's something noble about the filibuster. There's nothing noble about the filibuster. But what Bernie did was he invoked his privilege as a senator to stand and speak. And you have to have a a certain number of senators. And I don't recall if it's a majority or a supermajority to block somebody from speaking. And so basically, Bernie just stood up and gave a long, long speech, and it got turned into a book. In fact, that was his first best-selling book. It's called The Speech. But it wasn't so much a filibuster as it was a performance. But you're right. Democrats have used the filibuster to advance their... And, and, you know, Joe Manchin is saying, hey, you know, I want to be able to... Essentially, Joe Manchin is saying, I want to be able to use the filibuster to advance the interests of the coal industry in West Virginia. And Kirsten Sinema is saying, I want to be able to use the filibuster or join with my uh, also owned by the big banks colleagues to protect big finance. And, uh, you know, that's just the the bottom line of it. Carol, thanks for the call. Michael in Reading, Pennsylvania. Hey, Michael, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. wanted to talk to you about the filibuster. Personally, Mm -hmm. I think they should just get rid of it right away, just eliminate it. And here's why. Uh, 
most people are for you know everything that the Dems want to pass right now. So let's just get rid of the filibuster, pass all the legislation that everyone's for, and then when the Republicans get back in office, you know if they want to try to take that stuff away, dare them to. I think they'll have yeah, a hard no, time. No, I'm, I'm totally with you, Michael. But but you've got West Virginia's Joe Manchin and Arizona's yeah. Kirsten Cinema who are both saying, no, we kind of like the filibuster. It helps out our big corporate donors. So, uh, we But Mike, Michael's spot over. on. Yeah, well, that's why you need to call 202-224-3121 and uh, let them know what you think. Nine years before the oligarchs of the South declared war against the North because they wanted to preserve slavery. In fact, they wanted to impose slavery in the North. Many of these guys that these monuments have been built to just came right out and said it. Nine years before that began, Frederick Douglass gave a speech saying, what to the slave is the 4th of July? A good and important question. It continues to be a question because slavery is still legal in the United States. The 13th Amendment said that slavery can only exist under the color of law. If somebody is, is charged or convicted of a crime, then they can be held as a slave. And it's still going on in the United States. In fact, it's the main reason why we have more prisoners than any other country in the world, free labor. And then on top of that, we find that the police departments that get more 1033 equipment, they kill more people. Check it out at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. Roger in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Roger, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I'm just wondering if you could just explain your opinion, beliefs on pushing for a domestic terrorism bill and why you felt that it's not a good idea. Sure. Broadly speaking, I mean, if you go back and you look at the debates around the Patriot Act or arguably the non-debate around the Patriot Act in 2001 and early 2002, The Patriot Act allowed the federal government to go beyond what the Constitution provides in terms of protections of due process. And the argument that was made was, well, we're not doing this for American citizens. These powers will only be powers that the government can use overseas. In other words, we can violate our own core principles when we do it to foreign actors, when we do it to terrorists in Afghanistan, you know, bin Laden and his buddies. And so Americans kind of swallowed hard and went along with that. If we were to pass domestic terrorism legislation, just that word terrorism now has, as a consequence of a whole bunch of laws that have been passed, mostly since 2001, but some of them go back all the way to the 60s. Actually, some of them go back to the late 19th century, and they were, they were used mostly against the civil rights movement. But when you designate somebody a terrorist or a group as a terrorist group under federal law, they lose a whole bunch of rights. And I'm all in favor of tracking down and finding groups of American citizens who are trying to overthrow our government, who are trying to foster racial violence, who are trying to, you know, the things that we're actually seeing happen right in front of us. But to use the tools 
of the so-called war on terror that go beyond, that, that basically suspend our constitutional rights, in my opinion, is a very dangerous thing. I would have a fairly moderate to high level of confidence that a Biden administration, for example, would not abuse those tools. But if Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton became president, uh, I'm guessing, Roger, that you and I would both be labeled domestic terrorists and they'd be all over us. So that's why I don't think we should do that. Yeah, I hear that. But, you know, so what do you suggest, though? You know, the thing, like people like Frank Zaglusi, you know, former FBI agent who I listen to on MSNBC and other counterterrorism experts, um, he personally had said that we should get a domestic terrorist bill. But the, the problem being, you know, and with what's happening is now a lot of these uh, capital insurrectionists, they're being what a lot of us are saying, prematurely released from prison. And they're not mm. being tried to yeah. the fullest extent of the law. And, you know, people like Frank Faglusi are saying, if we had the bill on, on the books, we could streamline the whole process and really go after these white supremacists, nationalists, militias. You know, conspiracy to commit an insurrection, Roger, is already a 20-year federal felony. It's not that we don't have laws that can be used against these people. It's that we have prosecutors, and I think in many cases prosecutors who consider themselves right-wing Republicans, because that's very common among police and prosecutors, who are unwilling to use those laws. If I was going to make any change in our laws, I would update the RICO statute. The racketeering influence and corrupt organization law, the RICO law, is very narrowly uh, tailored to go after the mafia. And with uh, half a dozen relatively modest tweaks that would not blow up our constitutional rights. It's basically an anti-conspiracy law, right? It's that an organization has has turned from being a legitimate organization, a, a uh, you know a public interest group or a, or an advocacy group into uh, into a criminal enterprise. Um, and and it's very difficult control. right now. Well, it's very difficult to do that, and that's the problem, because the, the RICO laws are so narrowly ter- t- tailored for organized crime, um, you know, that, that it's very difficult to use them on these circumstances. And so that's the one area where I would have some give in my wariness of giving the government more power. But, I mean, you know, remember the FBI tracked Martin Luther King around for years and years and finally discovered him having an affair, recorded it, and sent him the recording and said, you know, commit suicide or we're going to send this to your wife. I mean, that's government power is, is a, is a, can be a, a dangerous, destructive thing. Now, that was done outside of government power. But that kind of behavior, we don't ever want to have, ever want to sanction. But I think that the conspiracy laws, grounded in the RICO statutes, could be updated to include political violence. It would have to be violence. It would, that would have to be the key to the whole thing. But, but again, be very, very careful because, you know, you get Josh Hawley as president in four years or Tom Cotton, and they're going to take that law and they're going to point it right at Black Lives Matter. And you know it as well as I do. So we've got to be, you know, in every case. Yeah, thank you, Roger. In every case, we've got to look at how can this law be used and more importantly, how can it be abused? Because inevitably it will be. We'll be back to the Tom Hartman program. 
helping you win the water cooler wars. It's the Tom Hartman program occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week right here. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Jordan in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Jordan. Eugene Goodman. Yes, yes. Uh, I would like to thank you for taking my call, Tom. I'd like to just point out something I noticed. Eugene Goodman is not only one of the best heroes in America and will we'll never be able to quantify what he actually saved, but uh, an unintended consequence of a white supremacist being used in the insurrectionist is I noticed when I was watching that video this weekend of Eugene protecting the Capitol that racism saved America. And these insurrectionists... Yeah, now, now, Jordan, just, let me just pause you for just a second for people who are listening and don't know what we're talking about. Eugene Goodman is the black Capitol Police officer who, as, as this white MAGA mob was coming up the stairs and heading toward the Senate and, and you know, could have... Uh, killed people. I mean, they they were expressing murderous intent and and heading toward the vice president and, and chanting "Hang Mike Pence." He's the guy who said, "No, no, follow me." Um, or yeah, I mean, we don't know his exact words, but it was videotaped. Uh, or you know, they're this way or whatever. And he got them to go in the opposite direction. He literally, I believe, he I, I believe Eugene Goodman saved lives. And for that, he was recognized by being the fellow who accompanied um, our vice president uh, up to the swearing-in ceremony, as I recall. Back to you, Jordan. Absolutely. And and all I, if you watch that video, you'll notice that the unintended consequence of using white supremacists in an insurrection is they abandoned the whole plan once they saw a black guy. And the black guy right. Let's go get him. him. Let's go get him. 
who cares about the rest of the plan? So in one strange way, <laughs> racism on January 6th saved America. I don't think I'll ever be able That's to say brilliant. that again as a black man, but I, I, I noticed that, and you'll notice it <laughs> if you watch the video again with that perspective. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, I think you're absolutely you. right, Jordan. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot for the call. And thank you for uh, thanks for hanging out for a while to get it on the air. Brian and Charlotte, yeah, that was a good one. Char, uh, Brian and Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey, Brian, you have some thoughts on the post office? Sure. You know, Tom, the problem of the $50 billion being set aside for, what is it, 60 years, is a prime example of how, you know, Republicans use government to work against the will of the people. And it kind of reminds me of what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission did a few years back when they could no longer issue renewal or new licenses for nuke plants because of uh, the government failing to provide a permanent solution for nuclear waste that they've been promising us since the 80s, right? So under George oh, Bush, CW, yeah, yeah. So what they did just a few years ago, they passed a rule called the Waste Confidence Rule. And so what that said was, while no solution had been found or determined for nuclear waste, the Nuclear Waste Commission had confidence that the government would find a solution in the future and that this confidence was equivalent to actually implementing a solution today. And so this, wow. this action of the NRC uh, allowed the environmental impact statements for all the permits to blow right over the nuclear waste requirements. So, you know, it's, it's just amazing how Republicans can figure out ways to logjam our country and work against us, even with an issue that, you know, is going to be deadly for 10,000 years. I can't think of any reason why the Democrats shouldn't use every power they have under the Constitution of this country to get this country straightened out and do it right now. Amen. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Our book today is Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster by Adam Higginbotham. This is from the prologue. <clears throat> Saturday, April 26, 1986, 4.16 p.m., Chernobyl Atomic Energy Station, Ukraine. Senior Lieutenant Alexander Logachev loved radiation the way other men love their wives. Tall and good-looking, 26 years old, with close-cropped dark hair and ice-blue eyes, Logoshev had joined the Soviet Army when he was still a boy. They had trained him well. The instructors from the military academy outside Moscow taught him with lethal poisons and unshielded radiation. He traveled to the testing grounds of Semipalatinsk in Kazakhstan and to the desolate East Urals Trace, where the fallout from a clandestine radioactive accident still poisoned the landscape. Eventually, Logachev's training took him even to the remote and forbidden islands of Novaya Zemlya, high in the Arctic Circle, and ground zero for the detonation of the terrible Tsar Bomba, the largest thermonuclear device in history. Now, as the lead radiation reconnaissance officer of the 427th Red Banner Mechanized Regiment of the Kiev District Civil Defense Force, Logachev knew how to protect himself and his three-man crew from nerve agents, biological weapons, gamma rays, and hot particles, by doing their work just as the textbooks dictated, by trusting his dosimetry equipment, and, when necessary, reaching for the nuclear, bacterial, and chemical warfare medical kits stored in the cockpit of their armored car. But he also believed that the best protection was psychological. These men who allowed themselves to fear radiation were most at risk. 
But those who came to love and appreciate its spectral presence, to understand its caprices, could endure even the most intense gamma bombardment and emerge as healthy as before. As he sped through the suburbs of Kiev that morning at the head of a a column of more than 30 vehicles summoned to an emergency at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, Logoshev had every reason to feel confident. The spring air blowing through the hatches of his armored scout car carried the smell of the trees and the freshly cut grass. His men, gathered on the parade ground just the night before for their monthly inspection, were drilled and ready. At his feet, a battery of radiological detection instruments, including a newly installed electronic device twice as sensitive as the old model, murmured softly, revealing nothing unusual in the atmosphere around them. But as they finally approached the plant later that morning, it became clear that something extraordinary had happened. The alarm on the radiation dosimeter first sounded as they passed the concrete signpost marking the perimeter of the power station grounds, and the lieutenant gave orders to stop the vehicle and log their findings. 51 roachens per hour. If they waited here just 60 minutes, they would all absorb the maximum dose of radiation permitted Soviet troops during wartime. They drove on, following the line of high-voltage transmission towers that marched toward the horizon in the direction of the power plant. Their readings climbed still further before falling again. Then, as the armored car rumbled along the concrete bank of the station's cooling canal, the outline of the fourth unit of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant finally became visible, and Logoshov and his crew gazed at it in silence. The roof of the 20-story building had been torn open. Its other upper levels blackened and collapsed into heaps of rubble. They could see shattered panels of ferro-concrete, tumbled blocks of graphite, and here and there the glittering metal casings of fuel assemblies from the core of a nuclear reactor. A cloud of steam drifted from the wreckage into the sunlit sky. Yet they had orders to conduct a full reconnaissance of the plant. Their armored car crawled counterclockwise around the complex at 10 kilometers an hour. Sergeant Vlaskin called out the radiation readings from the new instruments, and Logoshev scribbled them down on a map, hand-drawn on a sheet of parchment paper and ballpoint pen and colored marker. One roachin per hour, then two, then three. They turned left, and the figures began to rise quickly. Ten, thirty, fifty, a hundred. Two hundred fifty roachins an hour, the sergeant shouted, his eyes widening. Comrade Lieutenant, he began, and pointed at the radiometer. Logoshev looked down at the digital readout and felt his scalp prickle with terror. 2,080 rochins an hour, an impossible number. Logoshev struggled to remain calm and remember the textbook, to conquer his fear. But his training failed him, and the lieutenant heard himself screaming in panic at the driver, petrified that the vehicle would stall. Why are you going this way, you son of a bee? Are you out of your effing mind? If this thing dies, we'll all be corpses in 15 minutes. Part 1, Chapter 1, The Soviet Prometheus At the slow beat of approaching rotor blades, black birds rose into the sky, scattering over the frozen meadows and the pearly knots of creeks and ponds, lacing the Pripyat River Basin. Far below, standing knee-deep in snow, his breath lingering in heavy clouds, Viktor Brukhanov awaited the arrival of the nomenklatura from Moscow. When the helicopter touched down, the delegation of ministers and Communist Party officials trudged together over the icy field. The savage cold gnawed at their heavy woolen coats and nipped beneath their tall fur hats. The head of the Ministry of Energy and Electrification of the USSR and senior party bosses from the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine joined Brukhanov at the spot where their audacious new project was to begin. Just 34 years old, clever and ambitious, a dedicated party man, 
Brukhanov had come to western Ukraine with orders to begin building what would become the greatest nuclear power station on Earth. Midnight in Chernobyl. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you, the place where smart people get their news. Lynx in Bremerton, Washington. Hey, Lynx, what's up? Well, I just wanted to add my feelings on the Justice Department not prosecuting fully all of the people that were involved in the insurrection. And my feeling is, mm-hmm. is that Trump spent four years of his administration normalizing violence through his rhetoric. And by not prosecuting all of these people, what they did was a violent insurrection and defilement of the people's house. So all of these indignant white supremacists are going to feel validated that what they did was no big deal, and possibly even worse, that what they did was necessary and justified. And so by not Mm -hmm. holding them to account, we are further normalizing violence in this country, which is highly disturbing to me the other thing is do you have a functioning first amendment when cancel culture only allows one side to talk but what was left unsaid was that the speech that was being suppressed was an incitement to riot from the president and in its direction of his supporters fueled by QAnon conspiracies and lies about voter fraud and calls for violence the issue was not talk but murder and the white supremacist movement really is the ultimate cancel culture. And that's something that the mm-hmm. Republicans refuse to own. And they've wrapped themselves in the Confederate flag. And they need to own that. And that's what I have to add. Yeah, I'm with you, Links, and very well said. Thank you. What the hell is going on with the Republican Party? I mean, this is an entirely Republican effort. And now we've got the Hawaii GOP tweeting yesterday a video from this Hawaii commentator. His name is uh, Tarl Warwick. Actually, maybe he's not even in Hawaii. I'm not actually sure, but they retweeted it. They retweeted his video and they said he has an edgy name and frequently uses profanity. His commentary and analysis, however, is generally high quality. It's good to periodically step outside the bubble of corporate commentators for additional perspective. What's the additional perspective that this guy said in his video that the Republican Party of Hawaii just retweeted? Well, actually, this is one of his earlier videos, apparently. But in any case, here's what he said in an earlier video. Not the one they retweeted, but but the same guy. Quote, The famous Auschwitz shower was quite literally a showering station. They've got like swimming pools at those places. What's not clear is if this was a deliberate extermination effort on a grand scale or whether they were primarily focused in eliminating criminals and the sick. Really? So you've got the Hawaii Republican Party retweeting a Holocaust denier. You've got the Arizona Republican Party voting yesterday to censure Cindy McCain saying that she, quote, supports globalist policies, which is code for the international Jew. And no, I'm not making that up. This is this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. The the shorthand for it over at the Daily Stormer and other neo-Nazi sites is globalist policies. 
They condemned Doug Ducey, their governor, for asking people to wear masks. The, uh, they, they, they said that Republicans, well, this was Texas, the Texas Republican Party said, go to the site Gab and identify yourself with, the, with we are the storm, right? We are the storm is literally a phrase from the Daily Stormer, the official Nazi website here in the United States. This is the Texas Republican Party. Oh, and they also went after Jeff Flake, the Republicans in Arizona. So, and they went after Jeff Flake for saying that you know Trump had some responsibility in this act of treason. What the hell is going on with the Republican Party? Is this just like they're falling for propaganda that you know some foreign country is putting on Facebook or? Is this what they have always been? I'm increasingly thinking this is what they've always been. I've told you before the story of when I was, I don't know, 13 years old or thereabouts, my dad took me to a John Birch Society meeting. Now, he thought they were crackpots, but he wanted me to see who they were. And I picked up a copy of John Stormer's book, None Dare Call It Treason. They were giving them away. Turns out Fred Koch was probably paying for it. He had, he had been funding the John Birch Society at that time. And John Stormer's book, The None Dare Call It Treason, was about how the communists have infiltrated the State Department. And I was, whoa, freaked out after I read that book. But that was, that was part of the GOP back then. And this was like, you know, 1963. So, anyhow, Lisa in San Francisco. Hey, Lisa, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to throw in a little factoid that I heard. I don't remember which news outlet it came from, but I do remember hearing that when they stormed the Capitol, some people dressed in all black to to purposely imitate Antifa, or so people would think that they were Antifa. Yeah, but I haven't seen any of those in the pictures, and my concern would be if somebody showed up looking like they were an anti-fascist protester or a Black Lives Matter protester, that they would be set upon by the mob. It seems like that wouldn't be such a good idea. No, but like they knew it was a common knowledge, so it wouldn't mm. be like they were the lone person dressed. There was what yeah. I heard was there was quite a few of them dressed like that to give that impression. Yeah. So well, I haven't seen the pictures, but I've certainly been hearing the rhetoric. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I caught Sean Hannity over the weekend, you know, talking about how, you know, these are Democrat infiltrators. That's that's what it was. It was Democrat infiltrators. <laughs> right. Right. Lisa, thank you for the call. Thanks for the heads up on that. Audrey in Chicago. Hey, Audrey, what's up? Hey, Tom. My comment is this regarding the request for the pleading for mercy for these insurrectionists or people who are accused of insurrection, people who charge in the Capitol building. Justice in and of itself, in its true form, is a form of mercy. And, you know, what they are seeking, mm. when they say they want mercy, uh, they're not really seeking mercy. What they're seeking is absolution. They want us to pretend, oh, this is no big whoop. You know, they didn't really do anything. Let's just let them go. Let's be bygone. Let bygones be bygones. That's the kind of treatment, apparently, that they're, they're accustomed to receiving. And, of course, this is just way too severe an act 
for that. Uh, and you've talked about the history yeah. of the Republican Party acting on its agenda during the Trump administration, and for the audacity and the nerve of them to you see just exactly. I mean, you know, let's let's face facts here. This has not been the party of Abraham Lincoln for at least the last probably 100 years, with the exception of President Teddy Roosevelt and President Eisenhower. The Republican Party leadership has not tried to act on behalf of working people for all time. I am totally with you. And Teddy Roosevelt got thrown out of the party. He started his own, the Bull Moose Party. And Dwight Eisenhower, when, when he was thinking of running for president, everybody assumed he was going to run as a Democrat because nobody knew his politics. I want to move along because I see Steve is on the board and he wants to tell us that protesters at the Capitol were Democrats. So, Audrey, thank you so much for your call and your contribution. I agree with you. Steve, give me some evidence that these people storming the Capitol, spreading poop all over the walls and the floors, vandalizing priceless paintings that they were Democrats, really? Yes, I really believe that. Uh, You know, they've been trying to get rid of Trump for four years, and they will do anything they could, and they finally succeeded in doing it. And I really believe the leaders of that uh, bunch on uh, January the 6th were Democrats. Now, there might have been some Republicans Steve, first of all, Trump had already been removed. I mean, he lost the election by 7 million votes. He was gone, you know, said number one. But number two, can you name one Democrat who, I mean, we've already arrested, they've already arrested something like 140 people. Those names are all public information. So if there was even one Democrat in that crowd, I'm sure that Sean Hannity has been reporting on it over at Fox News. Can you please give me the name of even one Democrat who was arrested at the Capitol building? No, I can't give you any <laughs> Then what makes you think that? Well, I just believe it because I said they've tried to get Because you saw it on Fox? Four years. And, and they threw him out. Tom, I'm we threw him out. Tom, he lost by 7 million votes, Steve. Yeah, I know. And, and, well, what, and how would Democrats stopping the certification of Joe Biden as president, how would that throw out Donald Trump? Tom, they got the mail-in ballots. To begin with, I knew before the election that they got the mail-in ballots that Trump wasn't going to win. Because Democrats did not want to go out in the pandemic and expose themselves to death and disease? Well, whatever, yeah. I just believe I mean, we've been using mail-in ballots for 20 years here in Portland, and in those 20 years, there have been five or six cases of people voting who couldn't legally vote. That's it. We use biometrics, which is more accurate, and all mail-in ballots use biometrics. They compare signatures. It is easier to buy a fake ID than it is to fake a signature. It's almost impossible to fake a signature. So mail-in ballots are actually more secure than showing up at the polling place with a fake ID. How did that hurt Donald Trump? Well, sir, I couldn't hear you too good. but uh, Steve, I appreciate... I'm sorry, we're hitting the break here. I appreciate your respectful, very often people call and disagree with me. They, they start screaming obscenities and things. I appreciate a respectful and decent conversation with you and look forward to others in the future. But respectfully, Steve, there is no evidence to support your argument. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. None whatsoever. And I am not ready to play nice with these guys. We'll be back. 
You can find an absolutely fascinating library of my writings, including my daily rants, over at TomHartman.Medium.com. On the Science Revolution, Dr. Justin A. Frank is here on the psychology of mob mentality and violence. What propels a mob? Dr. Sam Metz, a member of Mad as Hell Doctors, drops by on the need for federal legislation to allow individual states to create true statewide universal health care plans, especially single-payer plans. Plus, in geeky science, I've discovered how 11 minutes can save the quality of your life. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind? Oh, it's a beautiful day out here in Southern California, Professor. Listen, you know, whenever I listen to conservative conversations, they're never principled. They're always self-serving. Uh, do you remember Benghazi? I <laughs> Who could forget? <laughs> Good God Almighty. I wish that I saw Marco Rubio over the weekend. You did, too. I mm. wish he had the same spirit. Mr. Rubio, I wish he had the same spirit towards enforcing the 14th Amendment, Section 3, regarding this failed coup that he had back in the days of Benghazi. And the problem that we got here, my brother, is anybody that came up with the Stop the Steal, if they were a Stop the Steal voice, that means they contested the election, which means they were rejecting the election, which means they should be summoned into court. And they were part of this failed yep. coup because they were complacent in this failed coup. You also got to get your boy Rupert Murdoch out in there, Sean Hannity in there. You got to get Laura Ingram in there. And you got to get uh, Tucker Carlson in there and asking where they got their information when they were telling all that stuff to the public. Now, watch this. Here's the problem you got with the 14th Amendment. That means that 134 congressmen and two senators are going to have to answer for their stop the steal voices. And that's a big one, Professor. Uh, that's a big, big problem right now. If we don't deal with this right now, we're going to set a bad precedent for the world and our country. If we don't punish these guys, it's a bad precedent to set. Now, we ain't got to put them in front of no firing squad, but we've got to do something with them. And, and thank you for this yeah. platform. I absolutely agree with you, Morris. And, you know, I think we need to do something really serious with them. John in Los Angeles, also listening on KPFK. Hey, John, what's up? Hey, Tom. Thanks for everything. Democracy's candle is flickering, but not quite extinguished. I want to. I know, think it's coming back. The, the Supreme Court just threw out all the lower court decisions to uh, charge Trump with annulments, you know, selling out foreign adversaries, whoever the highest bidders are, for you know having dictators, terrorist state, his hotel. That's, yeah, I that's saw one that. Point I wanted to make. And well, let me just to be clear, John. Just just so and people who are listening don't misunderstand what either of us are saying. What the Supreme Court said was that. These lower court rulings that said that Trump had violated the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution were not something that the Supreme Court could rule on now because Trump is no longer president. Now, I think that's a cop out. I think there I think John Roberts is afraid of getting death threats, too. But they did not rule in favor of Trump. They chose not to rule, essentially, is what happened. And thus, those lower court cases got thrown out because the lower court cases were arguing that Trump needed to immediately put his assets in a blind trust and no more Trump company deals with the federal government. Well, he's no longer president, so the Supreme Court said we can't do that. Anyhow, back to you, John. Sorry. Well, you know, I know how high and mighty they hold the emperor, uh, former emperor. Yeah. But this is what John Adams said, you know, and he was the son of a founding father. And he said it clearly. I hold myself, so long as I have the breath of life in my body, amenable to impeachment by this House for everything I did during the time I held any public office. 
which makes sense. Otherwise, you could just go on a killing spree and say, hey, I'm not the president anymore. You, you can't charge me. And, uh, you know, it's just it's right. just ludicrous. And one more quick point about the precedent of uh, impeachment. When they impeached Belknap, okay, he was President Ulysses S. Grant's longtime Secretary of War. But Belknap, you know, he had a couple of lavish parties and, you know, he's taking care of his first and second wife. That's different than taking care of hookers on taxpayers' expense. And also, he was a five-time war hero. He got the Congressional wow. Medal. John, I'm sorry, I'm out of time. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Our book for the Tom Hartman Book Club today is A Nation Forged by Crisis, A New American History by Jay Sexton. And I'm reading from the introduction. This is page nine. The quest for national security and global power, America's shifting position in the international economy, and fluctuations in immigration have made the United States the nation that it is today. Americans' foreign relations have conditioned its history not only in their cumulative effects over the long haul, but also as a result of their volatility. In periods of crisis, America's position in the world has lurched in unexpected directions. For as inexorable as the rise of the United States appears in retrospect, there have been contingent moments in which the very existence of our nation was up for grabs. This is the essence of crisis. The world turned upside down. The known replaced by the unknown. Panic reigning as people struggle to maintain their balance and shifts in the very ground beneath their feet. It came with a speed and ferocity that left men dazed, New York Times correspondent Elliot Bell wrote of Wall Street's catastrophic collapse in October of 1929. Quote, the market seemed like an insensate thing that was wreaking a wild and pitiless revenge upon those who thought to master it, end quote. Crises are contagious, spreading like viruses from one realm to another. It's not without reason that the word crisis was associated with medical conditions and health scares in the 19th century. Each of the periods under consideration in this book were less a singular crisis than a set of interlinked crises. A political crisis could trigger an economic panic, which in turn could intensify social conflict, and so on. As these pandemics spread through the body politic, crisis itself was normalized, becoming an almost accepted characteristic of an age. 
Just as foreign crises have spread to the United States, domestic ones have spilled across its borders, unsettling foreign countries and peoples, as well as reconfiguring America's connections to the world. Consider the fateful winter of secession that followed the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln. The crisis over slavery that divided the Union into warring sections that led to a series of sharp reversals in America's position in the global system. The foreign capital that had rushed into the roaring American economy in the preceding decades suddenly began to flee. Indeed, more capital left the United States in 1860 to 1862 than came into it, also a once-in-a-century occurrence. One of the world's most valuable commodities and America's largest exports, southern cotton, was confined to the ports of the Confederacy as a result of Richmond's ill-fated diplomatic strategy, leading to unemployment and social unrest in the British textile town of Lancashire. The most unexpected reversal was how the national security that the United States had attained after the war against Mexico in the 1840s was suddenly imperiled with European powers encroaching once again upon the Western Hemisphere. Meanwhile, the Confederate emissaries across the Atlantic in search of alliance with Britain. Our country, Secretary of State William Seward lamented in early 1861, after having expelled all European powers from the continent, now threatened to relapse into an aggravated form of its colonial experience and, like India, Turkey, China, and Italy, become the theater of transatlantic intervention and rapacity. A wider view of American history that looks beyond the nation's borders brings into focus not only the migration patterns, economic flows, and international rivalries that have connected the United States to the world, but also those rare moments in which the very existence of the nation was in question. Perhaps none was more pregnant with implications than the autumn of 1877, when the fate of the Patriots' bid for independence hung in the balance. Having proclaimed their independence to the world the previous 4th of July, their cause had stalled on the battlefield and in the diplomatic courts of the old world. I think the game is pretty near up, Washington privately confessed at year's end. To accomplish their independence is not quite so easy as to declare it, the British philosopher Jeremy Bentham haughtily remarked. But then a series of events forever changed the course of modern history. The stunning Patriot victory at the Battle of Saratoga in October. The drafting of the Articles of Confederation in November that, for all its limitations, further demonstrated the political resolve of the Americans. And most of all, the alliance signed with France in February 1778, which provided the Patriots with the resources, military assistance, and naval power that ultimately tipped the scales in their favor. There are comparable Saratoga moments in other crises in U.S. history, as we shall see. These contingent moments played out in their own distinctive ways, but are joined by a common denominator that has been curiously forgotten in our age of U.S. global power. Foreign states and people have played decisive roles in the critical moments of American history. As we make our way through our own era of global instability in an unprecedentedly interconnected world, there's perhaps no more important lesson from the past to keep in mind. Crisis may beget crisis, Franklin Roosevelt said, as his administration transitioned from battling the Great Depression to entering the Second World War. But the progress underneath does not wholly halt. It does go forward, end quote. Like so many of Roosevelt's public statements, this one reveals the truth even as it conceals others. The United States came out on the other side of its greatest crises as a stronger and more efficiently organized nation, as Roosevelt suggested. The process of mobilizing resources to counter threats catalyzed innovations in political economy, such as the creation of a national financial system during the Civil War, and the economic reforms of the New Deal. The book is A Nation Forged by Crisis by Jay Sexton.
Oh, my goodness. Welcome back. Uh, Robin in Kingston, Washington. Hey, Robin, what's up? Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm going to chip in with how you started the week out about um, the issue of uh, the Republicans, what's happening to the party and the Trump situation. Mm -hmm. I am not the same as you. I don't waffle back and forth worrying about the Republican Party and then speaking out against them. I want the Republican Party to represent the 35 percent of the people who are actually Republicans and whatever it might be in this thing. So I actually want Trump, certainly have the impeachment, but not to be convicted because I want Trump to hang around the Republican Party like an albatross, okay, for all of the years he has left in his life. <laughs> I have no, I don't worry about the Republicans, Tom. They're the most well funded, kind of secretive party that's out there. They're going to rebound and uh, whatever. So I, I'm, I'm pretty good with hanging anything that goes forward from here. We have to tie all Republicans to Trump, and then we're gonna yeah. we're gonna get to the sixty five percent of the people that are, actually have progressive thoughts. Yeah. I wanted well, to hang on just a second, Robin. Before we you were... before you move on, I just want to yeah. put a punctuation mark on what you're saying. Donald Trump is starting a, uh, is talking about starting his own party, the so called Patriots Party. I say Excellent. more power to him. I mean, the Excellent. only reason Woodrow Wilson became president in 19, what, 1912, I think it was, was because Teddy Roosevelt split from the Republican Party and split the Taft vote, um, as I recall. Teddy Roosevelt pulled almost a third of the vote, and as a result, you know, a Democrat won the White House. Let Donald Trump start a third party. I'd probably send them some money, Tom. Absolutely. Have them fracture the, the, the <laughs> yeah. Republicans. The second point I wanted to make last Friday about what we learned from 20 and 21 the elections is chronicled by Stacey Abrams. And she won Georgia by organizing locally. And so that we need we need the mail-in paper ballots, and we need to organize locally as we move to 2022. If we don't, we're going to have a hard time winning. So those are my two points. Yeah, and yeah. don't you worry your pretty little face about the Republican Party, Tom. They're going to be fine. Okay? we got to beat them. Okay. Okay? No, they, yeah, All they've right, got Tom. the billionaires. They've got the billionaires. Robin, thank you for the call. Jeff in Kenosha County, Wisconsin. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Hi, Tom. Long-time listener, finally, finally, first-time caller. Uh, you first educated well, you. me years ago on the business plot of 1933, and I've been fascinated with it ever since. Done a lot of research on it. Smedley Butler is a big, um, a big fan of his. And from what I understand, nobody was really charged in that. And I'm wondering if you That's think correct. this could be what we just went through is kind of a phase two of that, only this time the corporatists, through intense propaganda, have made the people at the Capitol their fall guy, and they're going to take the punishment for it. I was just yeah, I do. Your, uh... Thanks for bringing that up, Jeff, because the logic that Franklin Roosevelt used when he strong-armed the congressional Democrats into shutting down the investigation into the business plot, and for those people who don't know what we're talking about, in 1933, a group of wealthy industrialists, and we're, we don't know for sure exactly who they all are, but there was definitely a chemical, what in today's dollars would be billionaire in there, and a banking billionaire in there. They, along with a right-wing veterans group that had 500,000 people committed to marching on Washington, D.C. to seize Franklin Roosevelt and remove him, physically remove him from the White House, they approached the most famous Marine general at that point in time in the history of America, Smedley Butler, who was a, a decorated war hero from both World War One and the Spanish-American War, as I recall, and, uh, twice, uh, twice awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. 
Exactly. And, I mean, you know, he was... Yeah, he was he was famous the way Eisenhower was famous in 52. And they came to Smedley Butler and said, we want you to lead this movement because you have so much credibility. And, uh, you know, we can even talk about making you president. And Butler blew the whistle on him. And this led to a congressional investigation. And, you know, uh, they were going to go after these guys. And FDR shut it down because he was afraid that it would split the country even worse than it already was. And that's part of the rationale that's being used right now by Republicans who are saying, oh, well, you know, uh, just prosecute a few people, you know, uh, maybe one or or two, maybe an exam, and and don't prosecute any of those people in Congress. (laughs) That's that's awesome. And I'm with you, Jeff. I think that I agree with Rudy Giuliani that if you don't arrest people who are criminals, they're going to come back. You know, I obviously, you know, Giuliani used it in a racist way and all that kind of stuff. But the point is, you have to hold people to account. You have to. Absolutely. Or it happens again. Yes. Yes. Oh, was it Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes? You look at the time frame, too, you know, like we, I've heard you talk about approximately 80 years or so, you know, the life, the lifespan mm-hmm. of the average human being, you know, here we go again. It's yeah, good. and 80 years before the business plot was when Andrew Johnson, you know, basically pardoned everybody in the Confederacy. You know, or maybe, actually, maybe Lincoln had done that before him. I'm not sure. But basically, you know, the Confederate soldier, let's heal the country with malice toward none and charity to all. Eh, I think accountability is an important thing. Jeff, thank you for the call. Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Sue, who works on our newsletter, has just been doing an extraordinary job. We have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day she puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. And you know, she compiles these throughout the program and then gets the newsletter together and it goes out an hour or two after the show is off the air. And it's just absolutely extraordinary and something I think you'll find really useful. Uh, no charge for that. So we're trying to get the word out. There's so many ways to communicate these messages. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. Thanks so much for being with us today and uh, throughout the week. Thanks to Louise, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Albert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Strauss, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky, all the folks working on this show. Thank you, and thank you for being with us. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.